we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today we got the release of the most recent minutes of the Federal Open Market Committee. And I guess it was a bit of a mixed bag for people who were looking for whether the Fed was going to be more hawkish or more dovish with respect to uh, its next move on interest rates. One thing that was revealed in the minutes that uh, the, the, the governors still maintain or are still saying that they feel that this low inflation that we've been experiencing is transitory. What that means is that, hey, it's temporary and the low inflation is going to go back up towards their, their 2% target. This is supposedly a hawkish statement because if the Fed were worried that low inflation was going to persist, then they would do something about it to save us from the horrors of not having the cost of living rising at a fast enough clip. But as far as I'm concerned, none of this even matters because A, they are right, it is transitory. B, it's not even as low as they think because the CPI is not accurate. So inflation is already higher than what the official numbers reveal. But even if it is transitory, which it is, and even if the numbers go north of 2%, which they will, the Fed is going to do nothing. I mean, people still don't get it that when it comes to inflation fighting, the Fed is all bark and and no bite. But then if you look at what the Fed said 
in the same minutes, right, with regard to their patience with respect to the next rate hike. Remember, the Fed went from pretty much autopilot, they were raising rates, uh, you know, they were tightening, to um, being patient and being patient being appropriate. And now, if you read what they said, they said that it is going to be appropriate to remain patient for some time. Now, what does that mean for some time? That basically means forever. What the Fed is basically saying by saying it is appropriate to be patient for some time, meaning you don't have to worry about any rate hikes. Even if what we're saying about low inflation being transitory is true, it doesn't matter. Even when inflation gets back up to the level that we deem appropriate, we're still going to be patient. Because why doesn't the Fed just say we're going to be patient as long as the low inflation is transitory, right? Because they don't want to pin themselves down. They don't want to actually get the markets thinking that if inflation picks up, they're going to hike. So they're basically saying it's going to be appropriate for some time, right? Regardless of when this transitory low inflation transitions out of here, right? It doesn't matter. So this was actually a you know, a dovish statement, but the markets did not really react to it. I mean, the dollar didn't move. Gold didn't move. I mean, it was down a buck or two, I forget, but it didn't really have any reaction even. I didn't see any short-term movements in either direction as a result of these minutes being released. But again, the markets still, to me, are remaining oblivious, not only to this, but to the increasing trade tensions. You know, China seems to be digging in its heels and escalating uh, the war on its own side by turning it into, you know, a people's war, uh, turning it into patriotism. There is now a, a kind of a big wave in China for people just not to buy American-made products, kind of as solidarity in this war that America is the bad guy. And I think this is really serving China's interests because, you know, for a long time I've been saying that China needs to you know, wean itself of exports to the United States, stop buying U.S. Treasuries, stop loaning money uh, to the United States. But I've always said that there is a transitory uh, effect there because when you have an entire supply chain that is built around uh, producing and exporting to the United States, when you disrupt that supply chain, uh, there is some short-term disallocations. But I mean, they're all beneficial because that supply chain would be retooled and put to better use. I mean, it is much better for the Chinese to devote those resources, that capital, their labor to satisfying their own needs and desires than to devoting them to satisfy the needs and desires of Americans. Now, it's great for Americans, uh, but it's a raw deal for the Chinese. But, you know, the transition from that export to domestic production always involves some short-term pain, which the Chinese could weather because they're, you know, they're, they're not a democracy. They don't have to get reelected. But still, you know, the, the powers that be in China don't want to rock the boat. Uh, and, and so, you know, weaning themselves off of this bad habit, even though long-term a good thing, short run rocks the boat. But now we've basically uh, done the Chinese a favor. Because 
now, since America is the enemy, right, we're starting this trade war, we're putting tariffs on Americans who want to buy Chinese products, and now Beijing is able to cast America as the bad guy, and now, hey, we've got to give up these exports for patriotic reasons to the extent that there's some short-term disruptions that are associated with this transition now it's okay it's patriotic this is just the price we have to pay for the war so we're actually giving china an easy way out we're giving them an excuse to do something that they should have done a long time ago but for reasons of temporary disruption they were postponing it they didn't want to do it but now they're going to do it and we've given them cover because any problems, well, you know, we had to absorb this. We had to do this because America is the bad guy. America was trying to, you know, push China around and, and embarrass China. And we have to stand strong and fight back against, you know, these aggressive Americans. And if it means that, well, there's some temporary economic pain, it's worth it because this is, you know, what happens in a war. And so the Chinese, you know, they are going with these campaigns. I even read this article about some Chinese company basically putting out a memo to its employees. Hey, we don't want you using U.S. products. We don't want you vacationing in the United States. I mean, so this thing is really moving. And what the Chinese government has done, right, because we seem to be targeting a lot of their tech companies, their chip makers, uh, you know, computer hardware. So China is actually lowering taxes. I think they're eliminating taxes completely on some of these key manufacturers for the next couple of years and then giving them a substantial reduction in their overall tax rates for several years after that. So the idea is that, okay, in the short run, as your sales to the U.S. fall, because Americans aren't going to buy as much Chinese stuff because it's going to be more expensive. I mean, China is still going to sell things to the United States, they will just sell less. Now they're going to get, you know, there's going to be, Americans are going to pay more, but all that money isn't going to flow to China because some of it is going to flow to the U.S. government in tax revenue. But to the extent that the Chinese sell fewer products to Americans, uh, then, you know, but they have lower taxes, then the lower taxes may, uh, may be a wash or it may make it so that the products they don't sell to America, they will sell to other countries, uh, presumably maybe at a little bit of a lower price than what they were getting in America, but they'll make up for the fact that, well, they'll, they'll have a lower uh, profit because they're selling at a lower price, but they'll be paying a lower tax. So maybe the after-tax profits, now that taxes are lower, that a lot of these companies will get by selling their products to uh, other customers will be the same as what they were getting selling them to Americans. You know, and I keep hearing this whole idea that, well, you know, the other way China is going to fight back is by, you know, devaluing its currency. That's not fighting back. That's surrendering. <laughs> That's basically throwing, you know, throwing themselves on a grenade that was meant for us. You know, think about it this way. Instead of just debasing their currency so Americans could keep buying Chinese-made products, the Chinese government could just as easily go to all these Chinese companies and figure out whatever sales are declined. Let's say a company was selling a million widgets to America, but because of the tariffs, which increased the price of Chinese widgets to American consumers, American consumers don't buy a million widgets. They buy 900,000 widgets, right? So sales are off by 10%. 
Now, you could say, well, why doesn't China just debase its currency so that the widgets become cheaper for Americans and that way they can still sell a million widgets uh, to Americans? Well, the problem is they're not getting paid for the extra widgets. How about if they just did this, sell the 900 widgets to America for the same price, and then the Chinese government could just buy the other um, 100,000 widgets from those companies at the same price that they used to get from Americans, right? And they just hand them out for free to Chinese citizens, right? So in one way, they are taxing their citizens, which is what you're doing when you're debasing your currency because you're taking away wealth from your own people. So if they debase their currency, they're taking away wealth from their own people to give products to Americans. Well, if they just buy the products from their companies and give them away, well, they're taking away wealth from their own people in form of higher taxes or you know bigger debt, however they fund that acquisition. But then their own people are getting the benefit of the products. So the, the taxpayer in China pays for the subsidy, but then guess what's being subsidized? So it's better for China to keep the products in their own country. I mean, if they're going to have to pay for it, right, if they're basically going to give the products away, why give them to Americans? Give them to their own people, right? And so that that is what would happen. But of course, they're not going to do it that way. They just have to do it the way I've been describing it. Let their currency go up. Let their own citizens buy more of their own products and let China trade with other countries that can actually afford the products that they're importing from China, meaning that they can they could pay for their products in exports rather than imports. But despite the escalation of the trade war, the idea that any kind of trade deal right, is further and further into the future or completely off the table should be scaring the markets. The markets should be worried about this. And, you know, they are going down a little bit. I mean, the markets were down today. The Dow was down 100 points, uh, but that's only about 0.4%. The Nasdaq down slightly more, but about 0.45%. The only index really getting clobbered today were the transports, down 1.7%. That's a pretty big move in the transportations. Uh, you know, also a lot of the home builders got beat up today. I was watching those stocks. You know, Tesla, another stock that was down Six and a half percent today. I think it's down like eight, nine percent since Friday. I mean, or so far this week. I talked about Tesla on the Friday podcast, and I was warning about Tesla for a long time on this podcast. And of course, I'm not the only guy. Look, I mean, the fact that there's a lot of problems at Tesla, I mean, th this is not something that, you know, I discovered. I mean, there are pr plenty of smart people who have been short Tesla and who have been you know, publicly warning about the problems. It's just that those opinions have been in the minority. It's just that there is a minority opinion there. That's, you know, so I'm not the only one that figured this out. So I, you know, can't take credit for this. Uh, but I have been warning about Tesla for many years. And particularly, I pointed out some problems again on Friday, not only that the stock had broken down technically, and now it's at another new low. It closed at 192.73. Uh, just off the low of the day, the stock is now basically cut in half from the 52-week high, a 50% decline. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the chart, which is something I pointed out on Friday's podcast, there's nothing but air. I mean, this, this thing could drop like a stone. And in fact, it could drop to zero because they could go bankrupt. And that is the other problem that I'm talking about, or that I warned about, is the debt problem. Because this is not just about Tesla stock. It's about the bonds. Now, there's a lot of debt out there. 
uh, and the bonds are rated junk. And, you know, but still the interest rate on those junk bonds, you know, while much higher than, you know, the rate on investment quality bonds still does not reflect just how risky those bonds are. And that is the truth for the entire junk bond uh, market. I mean, the spreads of junk bonds over treasuries had gone to record lows. And all of this was because of the cheap credit that exists, courtesy of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the, you know, all these over-levered corporations were able to get money, were able to go even deeper into debt at rates that would not exist but for the Fed, which is why I pointed out on this podcast recent comments by the Fed where they were, you know, warning about high levels of corporate debt, which, you know, again, makes no sense. Like the bartender giving everybody alcohol and then warning about people being drunk. I mean, the Fed is the reason that so many corporations are so levered up. I mean, if they were worried about corporations being too levered up, they never should have uh, lowered rates the way they did. They never should have kept rates as low as they did for as long as they did. But the fact that they did that, well, this is the consequence. And of course, they wanted everybody borrowing and spending money. That was the exact goal of uh, their monetary policy. And that had a benefit in the short run of artificially stimulating the economy by encouraging debt that otherwise wouldn't have taken place. Well, the extra levels of debt that the Fed is warning about is the consequence of that policy. It was always a trade-off. It was short-term gain for long-term pain. And now they're saying, hey, wait a minute, look at this problem. Yes, of course. I knew about that problem in the beginning. That's why I said it was a mistake. I said we don't want to trade short-term gain for long-term pain because the long-term pain is going to be too agonizing. Let's take the pain in the short run because then it's not as bad and it's constructive pain because we're actually doing the right thing. We're actually laying the foundation for a, a legitimate recovery instead of the bubble, which is what the Federal Reserve gave us. But my point is, or the point I want to make here about Tesla is a broader point about the entire bond market, corporate bond market, junk bond market, because if Tesla's junk bonds blow up and all of a sudden these bond investors are hit with some big losses, this is going to send a shockwave throughout the entire junk bond market. But not just the junk bond market. I think it's going to work its way up to investment grade. And, you know, you look at the lower tier, right, the, uh, you know, the, the lowest tranche of investment grade bonds. There's a lot of bonds that are just barely above investment grade, right, that are one notch away from being junk bonds. And I think if we get a, a, a problem in the junk bond market, that is going to be a big problem for corporate credit in general, right? And if a lot of these companies that have been able to tap into the junk bond market can't do it anymore because the credit's not available at a rate that they can afford, well, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, they're going to have to raise money through equity. Well, a lot of these companies have been doing stock buybacks. Have they been selling junk bonds? They've been buying back their own overvalued stock. So number one, they have to stop buying back stock. But number two, they got to sell stock. They got to sell back the stock they've been buying into the market to raise the cash to pay off the debt that they can no longer refinance because the credit spigots are shut because the losses are starting to pop up. And again, nobody worries about 
loans until they start going bad, right? I said that all the time about Puerto Rico, right? I'm in Puerto Rico now, and people were loaning money to Puerto Rico for years and years, and no one cared about default, even though default was obvious, until it actually hit, people could pretend it didn't exist. They could ignore the problem. And so this is, you know, the junk bond market. Everybody's been merrily going along, borrowing money. People have loaned money, oblivious to the fact that a lot of these companies are not going to be able to pay the money back. But nobody cared because it wasn't a problem, right? They keep saying it's not a problem until it is. Well, you know, it's a problem from the beginning to say that it's not a problem until, you know, you deal with the consequences, right? I, the analogy is if you're on the, the top of the Empire State Building and you jump off, you can't say it's not a problem until you hit the pavement, right? Just because, you know, halfway down, so far, so good, it doesn't matter because hitting the pavement is inevitable, which means it's a problem because you're going to die when you hit the pavement. doesn't matter if somehow you're enjoying the way down, which obviously is not what happens. I mean, you pretty much die on the way down, but that's the point. You know, it is inevitable. A lot of these companies were going to default eventually. Uh, it was just a question of when, or they were going to have to raise cash to pay off the debt because they couldn't continue to borrow money. So, but you're going to see this pressure in the stock market, but that's going to also put downward pressure on all the credit ratings. So a lot of the companies that are now just barely above junk that are still investment grade, well, they're going to get downgraded to junk. And that is a big problem because there's a lot of entities that own these bonds that they because they're investment grade, but if they get downgraded to junk, they can't own them, which means they have to sell them, which means you have this huge blow up in the, in the corporate bond market, not just the high yield you know junk market, but the entire corporate bond market. You know, this is something too that other people, Jeff Gunlock in particular, this is one of the things that he's been talking about more than other issues is the problem that he sees in the corporate bond market. And this guy is, you know, he's the bond king, right? That's his nickname. I mean, he he's in the bond markets for a living. And why so many people are ignoring uh, Jeff's warning when it comes to his particular area of expertise, you know, is beyond me. And, you know, I, there was a, a, a interview that he just did uh, with, uh, it was, well, it was, it, it was, uh, he, he was sitting on a couch with Danielle DeMartino Booth. And um, it, it, Jeff Sherman was uh, basically moderating uh, like a joint interview. Uh, he's the guy that does the Sherman show. They interviewed me. By the way, I think he told me that uh, my interview was the third most listened to uh, interview ever done on, uh, on, on the Sherman show, which is uh, 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 Double Line's uh, official, you know, their, their podcast. So I'm not sure which two interviews beat me out, but I was, I was number three. But this was a good interview, which I would recommend. You can you can see it. I put it on my Facebook page. You can see the discussion. I mean, both Jeff and Danielle are good. I mean, I've I've spoken to them both uh, privately, uh, you know, relative to what you normally hear, uh, you know, in the mainstream. They're about as, as good as you get. And, you know, the audience, it's interesting, too. If you listen to the audience reaction, they were acting as if this was the most bearish stuff they'd ever heard. Like, oh, my God, like, this is crazy. I'm, I, I can't, you know, I, I can imagine how these guys would react if they were in a room listening to me talk. Because Gunlock and, 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 and Martinez Booth, I mean, they are sugarcoating everything. I mean, compared to me, I mean, these guys are, you know, everything is great, you know, in comparison to what I'm saying, even though they're saying a lot of the same things, uh, you know, they're not nearly as, you know, apocalyptic, you know, let's say in in how they present the outcome. But if you actually believe what they're saying, well, then that's the appropriate 
outcome. I mean, it's going to be apocalyptic. I mean, if what Gunlock and DeMartino Booth are saying is true, which it is, you know, the end game is very bad. I mean, much worse than, than what they kind of let on. And by the way, too, you'll hear quite a few of, uh, you know, my analogies. I mean, Gunlock, again, uh, used my analogy about uh, running into an old college buddy who's, who's run up a bunch of debt and whose claims he's killing it, you know, because he's got so much debt. Uh, you know, contrasting to himself, who you know, who doesn't have any debt, which is again is a, is a key point that I've been making over and over again. If the economy is so strong, why is everybody going so deep into debt? You know, when the signs of a strong economy is the fact that you're paying off your debt, you're getting out of debt, you're rebuilding your balance sheet, you're accumulating assets. You don't accumulate debt. You don't go deeper into debt when times are good. You go deeper into debt when times are bad. When times are good, you pay off your debts. <laughs> when times are good, you build up your savings. But that's not what's going on. I mean, you know, we've, we've and we've got plenty of other uh, anecdotal evidence, and not just the anecdotal evidence. I mean, look at the actual evidence that comes out. I mean, we get the government economic news. We got the Chicago uh, Fed National Activities Index came out on Monday. And on that index, they were looking for minus 0.1. And that would have been a slight improvement, I guess, over the minus 0.15 that we got in March. Now, they revised March is up to 0.05. But instead of an improvement, we went down to point to minus 0.45. Minus 0.45. That is the weakest number for the Chicago Fed in three years. That means that that index is lower than it was when Trump took office. It's lower than it was when Trump assumed office. So if Donald Trump is right and we have the greatest economy in the history of the United States, why is that index so low? Why is that index lower than it was when we had the worst economy in the United States under Barack Obama? Then look at the numbers we got yesterday on existing home sales. This was the, the April number, and they were looking for an improvement, right? Last month in March, we had a drop, of course, an unexpected drop. For some reason, the drop was unexpected. The bad news always is, right? Everybody expects good news, and they keep getting disappointed when they get bad news, yet they never adjust their expectations, no matter how much bad news they get. Everybody always assumes that the next piece of news is going to be good. But we got 5.21 million. These are annualized numbers uh, for existing home sales. And the consensus was for an improvement back to 5.35 million. Instead, we declined again for a second month. And the number went down to 5.19 million. Right? And uh, on a year-over-year on a -year basis, this is now the 14th month in a row where year-over-year -year existing home sales have been down. Now, that hasn't happened, right? A string that long has not happened in 10 years, right? You have to go back to the financial crisis time period, the housing crisis time period, to see a string of falling home sales as long as the string that we have right now. Now, again, if Donald Trump is right, and this is the greatest economy we've ever had, why is the housing market acting the way it did during the worst housing collapse we've had since the Great Depression, right? I mean, so the statistics for the greatest economy and the worst economy look pretty similar to me. So how can things be so great now if the data is so similar to when stuff was so bad? And the answer is it's not.
right? This is just, you know, Trump uh, talking. This is Trump putting on a show. This is Trump, you know, like he's marketing The Apprentice. He's now a product, right? He's trying to get reelected. And so he's trying to market the product. And he knows, well, how do I market the product? I tell everybody how great it is, right? He's trying to sell another four years of Donald Trump by saying everything is the greatest because of Donald Trump. And, you know, if he repeats that lie often enough, right, and loudly enough, a lot of people believe it. And they have been believing it. That's why I commented on my last podcast about consumer confidence. I mean, a lot of people are falling for this, even the media. I mean, most of the coverage of Trump, even though he gets a lot of criticism from the media, the media still acknowledges how great the economy is. Why? It's not great. He's even got them fooled. So they have to say, look, you know, we don't like him, even though, you know, we have to admit the economy is doing good. It's not doing good. You know, uh, it's just that everybody wants to pretend that it's doing good. Look, not only did you get Tesla getting clobbered today, look at another stock that I've been warning about on this podcast for years, uh, and that is Deutsche Bank, which is a Lehman type. Uh, company on the other side of the the Atlantic, but still, I think that looking at this stock is kind of a bellwether for problems in the financial sector. And this stock hit another all-time record low today, now $7.34. This thing continues to implode, and this is obviously warning about something. How could you ignore What's going on? Because all these financials are interconnected, right? Everybody is in bed with everybody else. And if you have a major problem at one, it probably means there's problems at a lot of them, right? And now look at the retail sales. Again, I continue to talk about this this week again. Big disappointments, uh, Kohl's, JCPenney. Today today was Nordstrom's. I mean, Nordstrom's closed down just nine and a quarter percent. So maybe a little bit of a recovery uh, off the lows near the end of the day. But the stock is down 50%. This stock was 67 and three quarters, was the 52-week high. It closed at 34.35. The low was 33.75. So the stock is cut in half. Now, I know a lot of people always say, Peter, you know, you can't look at these uh, brick-and-mortar retailers uh, because, you know, they're losing to online. And I I agree. I I acknowledge that part of the problem for the brick-and-mortar companies is that a lot more people are buying stuff on Amazon and other companies that are selling online. But this is still showing that if you look at the decline in sales at brick and mortar, the dollar amount exceeds the gain that we have online. So percentage-wise, online is growing faster than brick and mortar is shrinking, but brick and mortar started with a much bigger number. So if you actually look at American shopping, Americans are not buying all the stuff they used to buy at brick-and-mortar stores and buying online. They're buying less stuff. It's just that more of what they are buying, they're buying it online. And that is a problem uh, for people who have jobs because there's probably, for every dollar of sales, there's a lot more employment at brick-and-mortar than there is at online. But also, one of the reasons that a lot of people are shopping online is because they are uh, on such a tight budget. Because people have so much debt, because their incomes have not been rising as fast as the real cost of living, they're pinching every penny they have. And, you know, this is the equivalent of, you know, using coupons, right? Americans are buying stuff on the internet because it is cheaper. 
you know, in, in many cases, you know, they would rather buy brick and mortar. You know, certain things are a lot easier to buy brick and mortar, like clothing, right? You get to try it on, see if you like it, see if it fits, and then you get it right away. I mean, even if you buy clothing online, even if they ship it to you in a couple of days, right? It, you know, that's still a couple of days. And then when you get it, a lot of the stuff doesn't fit. And now, yes, they've made it easy to return. You put it back in the box, but it still takes time. You know, it's a lot easier and more convenient in many cases to go to an actual store where you can see the stuff, feel the stuff, try it on, uh, maybe have some sales help, right? I mean, that's easier. But people can't afford that convenience anymore. They're, they're, they're too broke. The economy is too weak. So the only way a lot of Americans can afford to buy stuff now is if they buy it online. Because they're getting a better deal. Well, that better deal is now going to go away because most of the stuff they're buying online is imported. And a lot of it is imported from China. You know, I, I, I think that all the shoe companies are really, you know, they're putting together a, a, a big, uh, you know, like, a, like an appeal to the White House. Don't put these tariffs because it's going to destroy the shoe industry. I mean, shoe prices are going to go up, you know, by 25% or whatever it is. Uh, and they might have been even going up more. The 25%, because here's what's going to happen. Because if you make the shoes 25% more expensive, right, obviously the companies are going to sell fewer shoes, a lot fewer shoes. Now that's going to reduce their profits. Now, one way they may be able to bring their profits back up is by actually raising prices on the shoes that they do sell. Because remember, they're not getting the additional revenue, right? So if Trump imposes a 25% tariff on Chinese shoes, when companies that import shoes from China pay that tariff and they tack it on to the higher price, they don't earn the extra money. The extra money just goes to the government. So if, but they are selling fewer shoes because you're pricing some consumers out of the market. Now that incremental sales, that could have been a good part of their profit. It's possible that they made most of their profit on those marginal pairs that they no longer are selling because sales have dropped because prices have gone up. And we know that, you know, demand is a function of price. The higher the price, the lower the demand. So, you know, because that's why, you know, they don't even raise the price more, right? As you raise prices, you lose sales. And there's a, there's a free market equilibrium price, right, where you can optimize your profits based on the, the number of sales and the price that you get. But the government is basically going to force the price up, so sales are going to go down, but the company is not getting that difference. The government is getting it. And so when you have a whole new supply and demand equation, you may find an equilibrium price comes at a lower quantity, but an even higher price for the consumer. So it's possible that the price of sneakers, in fact, not just possible, it will happen. We just don't know the exact amount, but the actual price of shoes that are you know, imported from China will actually go up by more than the amount of the tariffs. Some of the money will go to the company to make up for the fact that they're not selling as many shoes. Uh, and some of it will go to the government. Now, of course, the government is already promising to give away some of its tariffs to the farmers, right? Right, Because it wants to aid the farmers. So in which case, the American taxpayer gets hit twice, right? First, he has to suffer the higher prices that he pays for goods that he buys that are imported from China. And then he has to pay again to bail out the farmers. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a lose-lose proposition. I mean, Americans are losing so much, right? Eventually, they're going to get tired of winning, right? Because that's what Donald Trump said, that if we elected him president, we'd win so much, we'd be tired of winning. Well, now we're just losing, right? We're not winning. 
And I think, you know, the world is starting to wake up to the fact that America is not winning, that America is going to be losing. And the dollar is going to be losing. Even if it hasn't lost yet, it will. And we, again, we are, we are accelerating a process that should have started a long time ago. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But it's going to happen. And look, look at the, the news. I was reading this article. In fact, I was actually invited on Russia Today uh, to talk about this. Probably have that up on my YouTube channel, which, by the way, we finally, you know, it took a lot longer than I thought on my YouTube channel to get above 250,000 subscribers. But I finally got above there. In fact, when I mentioned I was getting close, I was about 1,000 away. It took maybe a whole month. Uh, so the rate at which I am adding subscribers has really slowed down because I guess too many people are, are very complacent about the U.S. economy. And so they're not, you know, really tuning in uh, to what I think uh, people used to call pessimism porn. I mean, that's what I, I forget. I, th I think that was uh, ABC News that initially interviewed me and came up with this idea that I was like selling pessimism porn. Uh, but I guess people are not as interested in that right now because they think everything is so great. Well, at some point, uh, things are going to start turning and there's going to be more people interested in, uh, in, in hearing this stuff. Uh, but the smart people have been listening to it consistently. And of course, this porn is free, right? You don't have to you don't have to pay for it, just like pretty much all the other porn. Um but Russia is buying a lot of gold. I mean, a record amount of gold. They are increasing their gold reserves. And the article that I was commenting on, which I also posted to my uh, Facebook page, had to do with should the world be concerned about Russia buying up all this gold? I mean, are they preparing for some kind of war? I mean, what does Russia know? Why are they stockpiling gold? And I think we should be concerned in America, but not 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 about war. I mean, I mean, we could beat Russia in a in a shooting war, right? It's not a shooting war that we have to worry about. It's an economic war, and this is what Russia is preparing for. And it's not so much an economic war as a transition, right? And you can consider it well an act of war because Russia and a lot of other countries are going to be dumping the dollar. That's what they're doing. The when when foreign countries are buying up gold. They are doing that to shore up their foreign currency reserves. That's what they want. They need more gold in their reserves. Why do they do that? Because they know that the value of their dollar reserves is going to go down. Look, the world has been using the dollar as the reserve currency, right? But the reason they started to use the dollar was because the dollar was backed by gold and it was redeemable in gold. It was, for all intent and purpose, gold. Right? In fact, it was better than gold because you could earn interest on your dollars. You didn't get any interest on your gold. So all these central banks were holding dollars as reserves. Now, what did America have as reserves? Gold, right? Because that's what was backing up the dollar, gold. What was backing up the Deutschmark, the dollar? But the dollar was backed by gold. So de facto, the Deutschmark was backed by gold through the dollar. Um, but now, the dollar is not backed by gold anymore. But the U.S. still holds most of its reserves in gold. I and mean, we hardly have any foreign currency reserves. Our reserves are gold, right? Because obviously, if the world is holding dollars as reserves, I mean, we can't hold dollars as reserves for dollars. And we don't want to really buy up euros or Japanese yen. Uh, so we've just been holding on to our gold, but we haven't been increasing the supply of gold at the same pace that we have been increasing the supply of dollars around the world. In fact, we haven't increased it at all. And the question is, have we decreased it? Because we haven't really had an audit of Fort Knox. So we don't really know 
how much gold the United States actually has. My guess is we don't have nearly as much as we claim. Because I bet that one of the reasons that the price of gold isn't higher is we've probably been selling off our gold without letting anybody know. But that's just a hunch that I have. Or at least we've been loaning that gold out to people who have maybe sold it short, who are never going to be able to buy it back. Which means if you've, if you've loaned out your gold, you may not get it back because the person who borrowed it from you may not be able to give it back to you. Right. So that might be going on. But Russia, if they're preparing for a world where the dollar is no longer going to be the reserve, well, what's going to be the reserve for the ruble? Well, gold. That's what they need. And so they're buying gold. And you know what? When the dollar blows up and it collapses, gold is going to take off. And so even if countries don't have a lot of gold as far as how many ounces they have or, or pounds or whatever their, their kilo, however they're measuring it, the, the value is going to skyrocket. So even if you end up losing, even if the dollar went to zero, which it probably won't go to zero, but let's just say it went to zero, right? And the country had 40% of its reserves in dollars and had 20% of its reserves in gold, I would bet that gold would gain enough value so that at the end of the day, they actually had more reserves behind their currency, even if their dollar reserves were completely written off. Because I think the value of that gold would go up by more than the loss of the value of the dollar, right? So, but this is what they're doing. And with gold, you know, still under $1,300, it makes a lot of sense for Russia to be buying gold rather than dollars. And to the extent that they have dollars, they should be selling them. But that's what everybody should be doing. And that's what China is going to do too. I mean, one of the ways that China will be able to weaken the dollar and strengthen its own currency, which helps it win the trade war because it enriches its own citizens, creating a more vibrant domestic market for the products that are no longer being sold to the United States. The way you do that is you sell dollars. You allow your treasuries to mature, right? which means you get full face for them. You don't have to sell them. Although where the bond market is, to the extent that Chinese have some treasuries, they might be able to sell them now for above face. Why wait till they mature when you can get more selling them now? right? So selling off those treasuries and then taking the dollars and selling them and buying gold. Right. So if they dump treasuries and they buy gold, that's a twofer. Right. That's again, they kill two birds with one stone. Not only do they make the dollar go down, but they make gold go up and they increase the value of the reserves that they've been buying. But they also inflict a lot more economic pain on the United States, because one of the reasons that everybody is so convinced that there's nothing to worry about is because the price of gold hasn't moved. Right. The gold is the canary in the coal mine. And as long as the canary is chirping, no, but none of the miners are worried. Right. But what we don't understand is that, you know, that, that that canary is being kept alive artificially, you know. And so at some point he's going to drop dead and, and it's going to be too late for anybody to get out of the mine. Uh, and, and that's what's going on with the gold market. And the fact that Russia and other countries are smart enough to buy gold, that should be a concern for the people who are too dumb to be buying gold. You know, and one of the arguments that uh, the Bitcoin guys try to make when they're trying to go against gold, you know, this new drop gold campaign. And by the way, I did a debate, another uh, debate on YouTube, and I debated this guy, Saifedim Aminos, who wrote this book called The Bitcoin Standard, which I started to read, and I'm going to read the whole thing. I just, you know, I, I, I didn't realize I had it until the morning of the debate. They sent it to me. And so I was, you know, I, I had to skim through it. Most of the stuff at the beginning is all good, right? I mean, the, when he writes about the origins of money and, um, 
uh, barter and gold and why gold is money. All that stuff, he's bang on, right? The only part where he, he gets it wrong is when he you know starts talking about Bitcoin. Um, and I read I read a lot of that stuff carefully. That's the stuff I had a chance to read because I wanted to hear his case for Bitcoin. I didn't need to read all the other stuff that I knew I would pretty much agree with. I wanted to read, you know, how he you know, how, how he made his case for why Bitcoin is the new standard that is going to be or replace gold. Um, but what are the arguments that a lot of people make? And I forget if, if, if Safe made this particular argument himself or not. And you can watch uh, the whole thing. It's almost an hour and a half. Uh, discussion between the two of us and also too you know obviously the 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 tone vase which is the youtube channel that hosted it is a crypto channel right so the audience are a bunch of crypto people so it wasn't like it was like kind of a objective audience who is you know watching this but if you read the comments on this thing and there's almost a thousand comments already and probably if i hadn't have you know put it on my facebook page you know there probably would be no pro Peter Schiff comments, maybe one or two, but pretty much every comment on there is basically, I'm a complete idiot. I'm a fool. You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm closed minded. I don't get it. I mean, it's, you know, so nobody wants to acknowledge that maybe I know something. And a lot of us, oh, Peter Schiff doesn't understand the technology. Yes, I do. I mean, I understand it as well as most people who are buying it. I mean, yeah, I'm not a computer programmer. You know, I'm not like, you know, uh, you know, a tech expert, but I think I get the technology as well as, you know, your typical Bitcoin buyer who's not, you know, you know, a computer programmer gets it. And, you know, and, and, and I still don't believe it's going to work. And I don't think it's my ignorance of technology. That's the problem. I think it's people who are buying Bitcoin. It's their ignorance of money. <laughs> that's the problem. It's their ignorance of, of economics. They know a little about it, but they just know it little to be to be dangerous. They just don't know the whole story, and so they're, they're they know half of it, and so they're 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 making some wrong conclusions. But what a lot of people are saying is they say, Peter, you know, you're such you're so critical of central bankers and central banks, yet you want to buy gold, and central banks are buying gold, and therefore when you're buying gold, you're aligning yourself with the central banks. So they're saying it's kind of hypocritical or it doesn't make any sense that I can be critical of central banks yet support gold because if central banks are buying gold, then that must be bad, you know, which maybe on the surface could sound plausible, but, but it's not at all. I mean, I am critical of central banks because they don't have enough gold. I'm critical of central banks because they create money without gold backing. I'm fine with a central bank where you have real money. But the problem is, you know, central banks don't stick to real money. That's why I'd rather not have a central bank at all. I'd rather have banks, private banks, not one central bank for the government, but all sorts of private banks that compete with each other, that create their own currencies as opposed to one Federal Reserve note. I'd rather have notes of all sorts of private banks circulating, which is exactly what happened before we had the Federal Reserve. And all those notes were backed by gold. And the fact that some central banks are being smart enough to buy gold, that doesn't mean that I won't buy it either because there's plenty of central banks that aren't buying any. There are plenty of central banks that have been dumb enough to sell their gold. You know, look what happened in the UK. The Canadian central bank sold all of its gold. What a stupid move that was. And, you know, look at the price that they sold. Look at the price where Britain sold a bunch of their gold. I mean, gold was under $300 an ounce. And, of course, in terms of the British pound, the price of gold has gone up so much more 
in pound terms than it has in dollar terms. I mean, what idiots they were because they sold dollars for other fiat currencies. They would have been much better off if they still had their gold. But they were too dumb and they sold it. But look, the fact that central banks are buying gold now reluctantly and some of the smarter ones are buying it, that's not a reason not to want to buy it. The fact that matters, why are they not buying Bitcoin? In fact, that's what all these guys believe. They all believe that one day central banks are going to buy Bitcoin. There is no way they're going to buy Bitcoin. Not, I mean, that is never going to happen. If you are buying Bitcoin because you think a central bank is going to buy it as part of its reserve, I mean, you're smoking something. That, that, that is never going to happen. But obviously, that's part of the hype, right? To get people into Bitcoin is to, is to float those kind of ridiculous ideas, uh, and people will bet on it by, by buying it now. In fact, just on, on this Sunday, and I didn't even realize it was happening until a friend of mine here in Puerto Rico told me to watch 60 Minutes that they were doing a report on, on Bitcoin. And so I had no idea that it was coming, but I'm guessing that people in the Bitcoin community had an idea because obviously a lot of key people uh, were being interviewed in this particular report. So I'm sure that, you know, the big whales in the crypto space, they knew this interview was coming, right? It didn't surprise them that 60 Minutes was going to do a segment on Bitcoin. And so that could also be one of the reasons that we had the big rally in Bitcoin up to 8,000 because people were buying Bitcoin in anticipation of this 60 minutes segment. Because after all, if 60 minutes did a big piece on Bitcoin, a lot of people who don't know about Bitcoin might learn about it from watching 60 minutes, right? 60 minutes has a much older uh, demographic, right? A lot of the people who are buying Bitcoin are young millennials, right? They've been getting into it. Uh, So Bitcoin hasn't made as much of an inroad into the older population. Now, part of that is because I think the older guys are are not naive enough to fall for it. They have a little bit more experience in investing, and so they're not going to jump on uh, a craze as easy as somebody with no experience and and and, and no real history, and you know, and they're jumping on it. Uh, and I guess it's hip, right? Younger people, oh, this is cool. This is the new thing. I'm going to be in Bitcoin. The people who watch 60 Minutes aren't as concerned about that. They're more concerned about having a good bowel movement uh, than than trying to be cool. But in any event, but if you're, you own Bitcoin and you know, hey, this new audience that watches 60 Minutes that has a lot more money than the millennial. See, that's the other thing. The average millennial or Generation Xer or YZ guys, whatever, they don't have a lot of money. I mean, so when they're buying Bitcoin now, I mean, they're buying hundreds of dollars at a time. But if you're talking about people in their 50s and their 60s who don't have any Bitcoin and, you know, they're watching 60 Minutes to the extent that these guys decide to put their toe in the water, I mean, it's a much bigger toe. Right. So they could be buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin. So I think that what might have happened is that a lot of uh, people were front running 60 minutes. Right. They were buying uh, Bitcoin, hoping to sell into the demand that would result from the 60 minutes piece on on Bitcoin. And one of the reasons I think that is because we didn't you know, we didn't actually go any higher. I mean, I was watching the price of Bitcoin while I was watching uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin segment, and we we didn't really tick up much. I mean, we did get above 8,000 again, but I mean, we couldn't stay there. We didn't get much above 8,000, and now we're back below. I mean, as I'm recording this, you know, we're back around 7,800, and we haven't been able to maintain any traction 
above above 8,000. The bulls have not been able to sustain a move above 8,000. Now, so far, every time it's pulled back from 8,000, like got down to 7,800, right, or something like that where we are now, they've always been able to bring it back to 8,000. So it's kind of been locked in this range, but it didn't go any higher despite the 60 minutes piece, which was extremely bullish. I mean, probably it was like a commercial. I was surprised at how pro-Bitcoin this, this segment was. Now, obviously, the people who were buying Bitcoin, you know, maybe a few weeks ago who knew this thing was coming, they didn't know for sure, right, it was going to be a good piece. You never know. Like You interview with somebody, and you don't know how they're going to slant it. You don't know. I mean, I'm sure that the footage they used, right, they have, it's a, like a 12-minute segment. I'm sure they had four or five hours worth of footage. And, and so you don't really know, you know, what they're going to use and you don't know how they're going to use it. I mean, look, I mean, look at what the Daily Show did to me. They had four hours worth of footage and they, you know, completely, you know, maybe look like a monster the way they cut and paste all kinds of irrelevant segments here and there. So, you know, you don't know exactly what uh, it's going to end up like. And then, of course, you, you know your own interview, but you don't know who else they're interviewing. You don't know what else is being said. So you don't know how they're going to make this. But personally, even if the people who were buying Bitcoin, you know, a few weeks ago because they knew the 60 minutes piece was going to come on, right? It doesn't really matter if you knew it was going to be positive or negative or balanced because any publicity from that respect is good publicity. Because think about it this way. Let's say you thought there was a risk that 60 Minutes did like a complete hit job on Bitcoin and, and, and basically said it was a complete scam and it's going to collapse. Who cares, right? Because nobody watching 60 Minutes owns any Bitcoin anyway, and the people who are watching it are going to care, right? They're, they're, they're already hooked. They're already, they already drank the Kool-Aid. It doesn't matter, right? There's nothing that anybody could say negative about Bitcoin that's going to convince somebody that they should sell their Bitcoin, right? I mean, that's like, you know, if I, if, you know, if you, if I go into a church, you know, of devout, uh, you know, you know, Christians, and I try to convert them to another religion, you know, they're not going to bite. I mean, they're, 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 they believe what they believe, no matter what I say, right? They're, they, this, they've had these beliefs and, and that's it. I, that's kind of the way I look at uh, Bitcoin. So they didn't have to worry. If they trash Bitcoin, yeah, it's just another establishment. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to convince you. They're just doing the job of the man, right? It's just a conspiracy, right? What do you expect from 60 Minutes? You know, they're in bed with the government. You know, they're trying to talk down Bitcoin, but, you know, we know it's going to prevail and it's going to go to the moon and all that. So even if uh, they were negative, nothing to worry about. If it was balanced, well, great. Maybe they have some positives, some negatives. So some people decide not to buy it, but then other people decide to buy it, right? Now, of course, if we get a complete puff piece, which is what we got, oh man, there's going to be a lot of new buying, right? I want to own Bitcoin now so that I can sell it, right? To the to the new buyers that 60 minutes are going to bring to the party, right? And so I think that's what's happening. I think that there is some new buying uh, that has been generated. I mean, that coverage was so one-sidedly optimistic. I would be surprised if it hasn't generated some buying interest among uh, the audience who has never bought Bitcoin. I bet there are some people that are buying Bitcoin that have never bought it before. Why isn't the price going up? Somebody is obviously selling right, to meet up this additional supply that is not driving the price higher. So that should also be a bit of a concern that this rally is running out of steam and that we're headed 
a quite a bit lower. But, you know, just a little bit on that 60-minute piece. And you can watch the piece. If you think I'm just, you know, making us up, how, how uh, you know, optimistic this was, just go watch it for yourself and see if you come to a different conclusion. Because this whole thing, they just covered Bitcoin and there was no skepticism. No concern. They were not worried. They did bring on uh, Lyle Brainerd uh, from the Fed. And they brought her in, I forget, maybe um, three quarters into the segment. And they showed maybe maybe 30, 45 second interview with her. And the only criticism she had of Bitcoin was, well, you know, it's not government regulated. And so it's risky because you don't have government there. Which, as far as the Bitcoin crowd is concerned, that's one of the best things about it. I mean, you tell somebody who's, you know, all in on Bitcoin, the problem with Bitcoin is there's not enough government regulation. They're like, oh, of course, that's why I like it. That's why I bought it. Who wants government regulation? If I wanted government regulation, I wouldn't have bought Bitcoin, right? I bought it because I didn't want the regulation. Now, of course, I made this point in order to, you know, get it ready for prime time, in order to bring in the ETFs and bring Wall Street in. Well, then you need regulation, you know, which basically alienates the true believers and why they bought it in the first place. And so people don't seem to recognize, you know, that contradiction there. But that's the only criticism that they had. I mean, they didn't have one expert from the financial community. And there are so many people in the financial community, right? I mean, you got Warren Buffett, you got Jamie Dimon, right? You got a lot of big people that would have gone on 60 Minutes to say, this stuff is terrible. It's going to zero. It's a scam. It's a fraud. It's rat poison, right? They could have presented the opposite side, right? And made it balanced, right? I mean, yes, if you want to talk about, hey, this new technology and how great it is and how wonderful it is and how people are getting rich, at least have some other people warning people, hey, this is a bubble. This is not sustainable. These people are going to lose a bunch of money. You know, do it, make it balanced, and, and it wasn't. Now, the question is, why wasn't it? I mean, who did, who who paid off 60 minutes? I mean, it, was there something behind the scenes? Because you don't normally get this type of reporting. I mean, yes, yeah, 60 minutes is normally biased against stuff, but it's normally they're biased against the free market. They're very they have a big bias in favor of big government. I mean, these are a bunch of liberals that that, that are running CBS in particular 60 minutes. So you would think that liberals would in particular, not like cryptocurrency, right? The whole idea behind it, right? They want more power in the government, right? They don't like free markets. They don't like capitalism. So if this, if Bitcoin is all about free market alternative to government and capitalism, why didn't they trash it? I mean, that's what they do with everything else that smacks of free market capitalism. They love the government. So to me, it's very suspicious too that 60 Minutes ran such a glowingly positive report on something that is perceived to be anti-government, pro-free market, right? Without, you know, without having some type of negative. I mean, why didn't it, why wasn't it just all negative, right? I mean, that's what you would have expected. Hey, this is some kind of free market scam and a bunch of people are going to lose their money and this is what you get when you don't have enough government. That's the type of reporting you would expect from 60 Minutes. And, you know, when a lot of people lose money and a lot of people who watch 60 Minutes if they're buying their Bitcoin at $8,000, they are going to lose a lot of money. You know, and maybe they could sue Bitcoin. I mean, maybe they could sue uh, CBS or 60 Minutes for not uh, presenting both sides of the story, for making it seem uh, too good to be true, which is what they did. And even people in the Bitcoin community, I'm reading the coverage of this, and they all admit this was a great story. This was great PR. 
And, you know, they think finally, see what they're saying is finally we've got something balanced, right? Hey, finally, we're Bitcoin is being shown in a positive light, which is BS. They get, I mean, look at CNBC. They show it in a positive light all the time. These idiots keep on acting as if it's a real deal. I mean, they're, the crypto space gets plenty, plenty of positive coverage. It gets much more positive coverage than it gets negative coverage. Uh, but maybe, maybe, uh, maybe CNBC had done something on it in the past that was that that was more negative than this. Uh, but th- this is not making up for all the bad press. I mean, Bitcoin has gotten a lot a lot of good press that it didn't deserve. But this is probably the best piece that I've ever seen. So check it out for yourself. But what should be of particular concern to the Bitcoin crowd is that this fantastic piece of publicity did not make the stock go did not make the price of Bitcoin go higher. Now, some people now will say, well, who cares? You know, these are just older people. This is not the demographic. Oh, this is a big deal. These are the people that you need, right? If you want to really grow the market beyond the millennials living in their parents' basements, if you want real money to go into the crypto space or in Bitcoin, you need the type of person that watches, uh, that watches uh, 60 Minutes. And the fact is, if they are buying and some of them are buying, why is the price going down and not going up? Oh, 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 oh,